Good morning, church. I invite you to turn to that passage that was just read, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. And while you do that, I want to, um, along with what Pastor Matt has done, I want to invite you to um, just kind of reckon with that kind of sinking feeling you probably have in your stomach. I want you to um, not turn away from that sense of like agony and frustration, anger maybe, angst, that leads us in a week like this just kind of throw our hands up and say, is there any good out there? Like, is there anyone we can look at and say, like that? Let's just do it like that. And you can go on down the line and you can look at political leaders, social leaders, religious leaders. And we don't have to like demonize these people, but it's very easy to get disillusioned with them and to just know there's got to be something more. There's got to be somewhere where we can look and just find examples of integrity, faithfulness, honesty, righteousness. And there's a way to overstate what I'm I'm saying right now, but I, I just want to give you the freedom after a week, weeks like what we've been through, and just feel that sense of, is there any like source of, of hope? And I want you to know that's probably how we should be reading much of our Bibles, especially when we go throughout the Old Testament. As we read the Old Testament scriptures, there is an appropriate response as we go down the line and we look at figure after figure and generation after generation and say, are any of these people gonna get it right? I mean, God's like speaking. He's sending bread from heaven. He's putting kings in palaces. He's, he's removing like entire armies just because they go crazy because they're seeing visions. Like God is doing amazing things and yet generation after generation and leader after leader and prophet after prophet, they all fall short. They come, they live, they die and they leave us wondering, is there anyone who's gonna make this right? And I think both the sense that we feel after a week like this and the, the, the sense we have as we read our Bibles and say, is there anyone who is gonna make this right? Is there anybody who's gonna chart a path forward? Is there anybody who's gonna show us what it looks like to live? Is there anybody who we can look to and not at some point feel this crushing weight of disappointment? And let that, let that feeling bring you into the text that we're reading today. And I, I just want to invite you, I want to hold out to you a very simple, very simple instruction. Consider Jesus.
There is no one you will ever look to to find hope and security and salvation and rescue and steadiness that will not let you down other than Jesus. Some of you might be wrestling, I think, with a sense of even a a shaking of your own faith. Can any of this be true if religious leaders are acting this way? Can any of this be true if there's so much hurt and pain? And I just want to invite you to consider Jesus. Because what we have in him, and him alone, brothers and sisters, him alone is the one in whom we see the glory of God perfectly manifested the character of God perfectly upheld, the plan of God perfectly revealed and accomplished. It is in Christ, in Christ alone. The Lord does not need the Southern Baptist Convention. The Lord does not need Imago Dei Church. The Lord does not need you and he does not need me. He has Jesus. And friends, I just want to encourage you, you don't need the Southern Baptist Convention, and you don't need Imago Dei Church. You don't need the elders of this church. You need Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the only one who won't disappoint you. We just read a passage in Colossians 3 that says, the nature of our relating to one another is going to be bearing with one another, forgiving each other when we offend one another. That's what you're going to get as a part of this church family. You know who you will never have to forgive? Jesus and Jesus alone. We got a lot of text that we're gonna cover. And I'm gonna highlight a few things, but here's the main thing I want you to get. Consider Jesus. Just, just look at him, gaze upon him, and see in him a contrast to everything else. Every Old Testament figure that was held up and failed. Every political leader that has risen up and failed. Every Every religious leader that has been held up and inevitably fallen short, see in Christ a contrast to them. Consider him and realize that God's plan and his his plan, his, his unfolding glory and providence, it is not shaken at all because of Christ. Because of Christ. So I just want to take that big idea. Let's just look at Jesus this morning and let's consider just a couple, a couple aspects of his, his person and his work in this text. But if you just, here's the big idea. Just consider Christ. Just consider him this morning. This passage that talks about the, the transfiguration, these, this moment, this event on the top of a mountain is probably one of the most significant events in, in the gospel accounts. Peter and and John both probably allude back to it in their later writings. They will will reference it in a way that is somewhat similar to how the Apostle Paul looks at his own encounter with Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus in the, the Damascus Road. Encountering Christ on this mountain in this way was would be totally like transformative for these disciples, even though, as we will see, they completely botch it. They, they do not get it in this, in this passage. 
but it will be something where they can look back and say, ah, now, now I see. Now I see, I, I see what was revealed to me. The first thing I want us to see that was shown to them in this is Christ's superiority. Jesus is better, he is bigger, he is superior to everything else. Verse 28 of this passage, Luke tells us that Jesus goes up on this mountain to pray. It's remarkable that as we even consider this Jesus, that he has an ongoing habit of manifesting his own dependence on God and an ongoing priority with, of communing with God in secret. The crowds are there, the ministry is available, the popularity and the authority are all right there for him. And yet he finds it worth his time to go up to a mountain and pray. This prayer meeting takes place on a mountain. And just like many significant events in the scriptures, uh, going up onto a mountain would be something that you just knew God was about to do something. And so he goes up on the mountain to, to pray, and there he is transfigured. Just a fancy word for he was, he was changed, he was transformed. We see it in a couple ways. We see that both his face and his clothes uh, are altered in some way. In verse 29, it says his face was altered and his clothing became a, a dazzling white. The picture here is that glory is kind of bursting through. It's really the, the actual kind of image and, and manifest presence of God is, is kind of taking root in the person of Jesus. Why, why, is, why is all this happening and why is Luke telling us this? There's probably at least a couple reasons. <clears throat> One is, it's in some ways a preview of Jesus' second coming. You might remember from last week, uh, Tony kind of uh, introduced the idea. Verse 27, if you just want to jump up one verse, uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And at least, in, I'm, I'm, I agree with uh, Tony on this, it seems like the most likely uh, meaning of that is that there are some people who are hearing his teaching that we're going to see the, the kingdom of God manifest in this transfiguration, that Peter and James and John were getting a taste of the the returning Christ and the kingdom that he would bring. This, this transformation that they got to see physically in Jesus was just a, a picture of what was gonna happen when Jesus returns himself. And they're, they're getting to, to kind of glimpse at the idea that everything that's falling apart around them, they're getting just a, a little taste of how Jesus is gonna make all that right, how he's going to transform things, he's gonna change things, they're going to be brought into this kind of glorious new reality. So they're meant to, to show Jesus' second coming and what this glory would like, but they're also meant to show, this, this, this change is meant to show the, the superiority of Jesus. This whole event is meant to highlight Jesus' superiority over all the other things that, that Peter and James and John and you and I are tempted to maybe put our hope and trust in also meant to show us Jesus' superiority because we're gonna need Jesus' superiority. This passage comes right on the heels of Jesus looking at his people, his disciples, and saying, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. And I just wanna ask, why would it be worth it for us to take up a cross? Why would it be worth it for you to daily take an instrument of torture upon yourself? There better be something worth it on the other side. And the transfiguration, friends, is telling us there is something worth it. 
that Jesus is in fact worth it and worthy of you taking up your cross and following him. Why would you want to follow him to a cross? Look at the glory that manifests in him. And, and realize, friends, as we read this passage, you're gonna get to, if you're in Christ, you're gonna get to see this. The scriptures tell us we will see him as he is. And you, brother, sister, no matter what suffering you are undergoing, no matter what persecution or pushback or being marginalized for your faith, maybe in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, you will not wonder if it is worth it when you see this Jesus. You will look at this transformed second coming of Jesus and say, it was all worth it. There will be no questions. And so this transfiguration is meant to give the disciples a picture and say, you're about to go through rough times. This is what's coming. And that's a great encouragement from us, for us. He is superior to all the suffering and all the, the heartache that they're going to that they're going to experience. He's also superior to all the other places they could look to for rescue. He's joined in this passage by Moses and Elijah, representations really of the Old Testament law and the prophets. And it's consistent throughout this, this little saga here that Luke is trying to show us, that the event is trying to show Peter, James, and John. We're supposed to learn that Jesus is the fulfillment and the apex, the culmination of those things. Jesus is not just another one of the law and the prophets or anything like that. He is the, the, the fulfillment of those things, as we'll see in just a second. There are several kind of sections here that I just want you to notice how Luke is trying to tip his hand and show us everything that these first century Jews would have looked back at as kind of the anchors of their faith. They're all pointing to Jesus. If you look in verse 30 and 31, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they spoke. And what do you think they would talk about? I mean, two dead guys show up. There's just a host of things that they could be talking about. Did you catch the game last night? What's it like on the other side? I don't know, I don't know, you know like there's just a lot of questions. This, this is what Moses and Elijah wanted to talk about. Jesus' departure. That word departure is the same word that we would get the word exodus from. It's very intentional, it's not an accident, it's not just that's the language. What Luke is trying to show us is that they were talking about Jesus and the work that he was doing as a new exodus, a better exodus. Exodus being a getting out or a going out, a deliverance that will happen. And notice here, it was a, it was a deliverance uh, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus was about to accomplish a greater exodus. The exodus consistently throughout the Old Testament scriptures was a picture of the deliverance and the salvation of God. And this is saying that what Jesus is about to accomplish is a coming exodus and it is going to be, it is gonna surpass the other one. But you know what Moses, you know what Moses did, like his thing in the Old Testament? The exodus. You know what Moses wants to talk about? Jesus' exodus. He's like, my exodus is just pointing forward to your exodus. We don't need to talk about mine. Waters parting, pillars of cloud and fire, plagues, all that. Let's not worry about that. Jesus, let's talk about your exodus. That's the real one. 
He was about to accomplish it. I love this. Think about everything he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You know what was coming in Jerusalem? Suffering, death, rejection, torture, crucifixion. And you know how, how Luke describes that? Accomplishment. He accomplished something in his exodus. It was purposeful. It was planned. <clears throat> Jesus accomplishes a greater exodus. We also see that Jesus provides a greater tabernacle. In verses 32 and 33, uh, Peter and those who are with him, they're struggling a little bit. They are heavy with sleep, but then things are going on, right? Just like consistently, Jesus is like, come pray with me, and they're like, We'd rather just sleep. I want to throw stones at them, but like, I'm like, yeah, I get it, right? Uh, if you, I mean, let's just be honest. None of us are probably like Jesus in our prayer life. We're probably a little bit more like Peter, James, and John, okay? Uh, and so we're like, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to do all, and then the, the eyelids get heavy. And so we don't want to throw stones at them here, but it is somewhat comical that like, eternal things are happening right here, and they're yawning, they're struggling a little bit. I don't know. It's just, so they're heavy with sleep, but lucky for them, they become fully awake. And they see his glory and the two men who stood with them. With him. And, and the men in verse 33, they're, they're about to leave. And Peter, bless his heart, is like, no, 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 not yet. Like he knows something crazy is happening. And so he, he's grasping a little bit. It's, it's cute, but it, he kind of misses the point, right? He says, he says, Master, it's, it's actually good, like, it's good for you, Jesus, that we're here, okay? Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I love what Luke does here at the end of verse 33. He, he kind of tips his hat to kind of say, poor Peter, you know, like... <laughs> Not knowing what he had said. It's like, you know, when, when the, the biblical author says, you don't know what you're saying, just, you know, walk it back, okay? <laughs> Peter wants to build tents, tabernacles, the Old Testament. Right after the, right after the story of the Exodus, the people of God were wandering through the desert and they were instructed to build a tabernacle, a large tent that would be the manifestation, the place of the presence of God. Peter wants to prolong this moment of God's manifest presence. And he wants to do so by building tabernacles, tents, dwelling places. And Luke says he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's getting ahead of himself. He wants to prolong this event. He wants this to go on for a while, but he's forgetting the fact that Jesus had not yet accomplished his exodus. He had not yet accomplished his great salvation. Jesus still had to die, and so the time wasn't yet for this manifest presence to go on indefinitely. And so it was a little early, but not only that, he, he's, missing, he's missing the reality that's even more fundamental Jesus doesn't need a tent for the manifest presence of God. Jesus is the tent of the manifest presence of God. Jesus is the tabernacle. 
He is the greater tent. He is the one that you've been looking for. Peter, the one you want to keep around. You don't need to like bring them in like a, like a hen brings in her chick. You can, let, you can let Moses and Elijah go. He is right here. The tabernacle was standing right there in Christ. He was the greater tabernacle and he was also the greater prophet. I love, I love how this progresses, right? As he was saying these things, as Peter is trying to struggle through these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. If you are dialoguing with like the manifest presence of God and you see uh, uh, like dead guys who are there talking with you and things are glowing and then a cloud rolls in, I would say fear is an appropriate response, okay? Uh, this, is, this cloud is, is, is often used, even in the Old Testament scripture, this, this place of a meeting with God. God often speaks out of the cloud. Moses would go onto the mountain into the cloud and there he would meet and commune with God and listen what happens when Peter and James and John are brought into this cloud. The voice comes out and they... It, that this voice of God has something very specific to say. This, it's all singular. You know how what Peter wanted to do? Let me make three tents. One for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. And the voice is trying to say, these three are not on the same level. One of these things is not like the other, the game might go, right? There's something different about this one. The cloud rushes in, and yes, Moses and Elijah are there, but this is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You don't need Moses and Elijah there. You have the one in Christ Jesus. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And friends, that is not a disappointment. They kept silent and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. How would they? How could they possibly communicate that they had seen the manifest presence of God and seen Christ to be a greater prophet, a greater tabernacle, a greater exodus there provided for them? And friends, in a day when we are bombarded by weakness and failing after failing after failing of human leadership and we try to find the other people that we can put up onto a pedestal and say, that's kind of like Jesus. Let us tremble to put anything in the same sentence with this Jesus. He is the chosen one. He is far superior than any other competitors. And when those competitors inevitably fail, just like Elijah did, just like Moses did, just like David did, just like your leaders did and will continue to do, there is one who stands there, spotless, perfect, and superior. Consider this Jesus. Now, despite this glorious moment, the next passage reminds us not only of the, the, the gloriousness, the, 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 the majesty of Jesus, but also the humility of Jesus, and it's in fact through his humility that this, that this exodus is going to be accomplished. And so let's, let's keep moving through the text as we consider not only Jesus's, his superiority, but his, his humility. Jesus descends from the mountain. 
He doesn't stay up on the mountain. He's still got work to do, so he comes down. It's, a, it's evocative of the, the incarnation itself. He's entering into the mess, and there, as he steps down, there's immediately crowds there to greet him, and there is, in fact, a mess. There's a crisis. And so let's look at Jesus' humility in two scenes. The first is where we see that he cares for the sufferer. Despite this, this superior Christ, he cares for the sufferer. There's a father here, his only child has an evil spirit that is literally hell-bent on destroying the child. And the disciples are completely unable to help. They, they can't do it. Once again, we're given this contrast between disciples who can't and Jesus who can And Jesus, in his infinite ability and in his eternal purposes, finds it it valuable to enter into this crisis and to actually heal this boy of this unclean spirit. And it's almost like that's not even the the main point. It's it's just, Luke is just giving us kind of of facts here. He's coming in and he he wants to, to lament the faithless and twisted generation that is in front of him. He wants to, he wants to point out that all the stuff that he, he's already been shown that, that on, the, on the mountain with the, with the transfiguration, the response that we have to that is deep trust and faith in him and the disciples, who I think are the primary target here of this kind of soft rebuke that he has, is, is to say, you guys are still missing it. You still don't believe, you still don't understand. And so he, he says, how long am I gonna be, I'm not gonna be here much longer to help you in this way, to bear with you, he says. And he's not trying to show kind of a reluctance, like I don't want to help you. He's talking about a forbearance, a patience, a time is running out. You need to trust him. You need to see his compassion and his power and his ability, not just up on the mountain, but in and among the people. And so he reaches out into this this man's life and he actually rescues him. He doesn't stay far off and aloof from this man, but he actually gets into the muck and the mire. And I, I just want you, as you consider Jesus, friend, depending on, I don't know what you're going through this morning, this week, I don't know how this last couple weeks has hit you or if you've got other things that haven't even been mentioned. I want you to know that in Jesus, you have an all-powerful Savior who descends into the mess. He identifies with you, he sees you, he has compassion with you, and he has the power to actually walk with you. He is faithful to care for the sufferer. And the people's response, you can see it there in the text in verse 43, is one of astonishment. They look at Jesus' manifest presence and his power and they recognize God is among us. God's glory, his, his power, his majesty is being displayed. So not only is Jesus' humility shown in that he cares for the sufferer, it's also shown in that he dies for the sinner. Recognize the connection. The one who is the second coming, right? Er, sorry, is, is the savior. He is the one who's shown to like, he's, gonna, he's going to return again and bring judgment. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law and prophets and all those kind of things. In his majesty, he has come to die. Jesus is concerned that the disciples might miss the point. Spoiler alert, they did severely, coming off the mountaintop, displaying the the glory and the power and the majesty of God, it doesn't change what needs to happen. 
And so I love, I don't know if Jesus is being kind of sarcastic and biting, but to my ear, it reads like that. Let this, get this into your thick skulls is kind of what I hear it as, right? I don't think Jesus was being sinful or rude. It's just, it's very pointed, right? I need you to pay attention to this. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Don't lose sight of what's about to happen. You've seen the glory of the mountaintop. You've seen his power over the demonic. But realize something still has to happen. There is a handing over that is going to happen. Handing over throughout the scriptures is often used as a, as a reference of judgment, of being, of being given over to the, the punishment of your sins. Jesus is being handed over, but not for his own sins. It's going to be for the sins of others. In his humility, he doesn't cling to his, his rights as the eternal son of God, but instead he comes to embrace the plan and the purpose of God to accomplish a great exodus as he is handed over for your sins and for mine. The centrality of Jesus in God's plan and Jesus' superiority to all others does not mean that Jesus escapes suffering, but rather that he is driven to it And the majesty of God in Christ cannot be separated from the judgment of God on Christ. The mountaintop experience where Jesus is revealed to be the presence of God, it it can't be separated from when the, the judgment of God is poured out on Jesus as he dies for sinners. His greatness and his humility, though they can't be they can't be separated. And friends, this is the gospel message. The Holy One is the one who will be handed, the only one we can look to and say, that guy doesn't deserve punishment, is handed over for punishment, for your punishment and for mine. The majestic one is going to be rejected. The chosen one is going to die for sinners. Now, of course, in verse 45, Luke tells us, the disciples did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them. They, they, they just could not fully understand, despite the fact that Jesus told them, let this sink into your ears. He says it was, it was concealed for them. It was not yet for them to fully understand. And so Luke then progresses to show us how much they really don't understand. They've seen Christ's superiority, and they've marveled at his humility, but they still need his teaching. They still need his instruction, and so do we. And so look, thirdly, consider Christ's teaching. We get two little scenes here of Christ teaching his disciples, and they're all kind of wrapped around this idea of of greatness that we've been talking about. The first thing you need to see is that Jesus redefines grace to that. is to argue about which one of them is like next tier, right? Jesus can get the top, st- the top spot, that's fine. Which one, do you think, which one of us do you think is better? They're arguing among themselves which of them is the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, I love that. They, they're like hiding it from him, and he, it doesn't matter. 
He knows the reasoning of their heart, and so he takes a child and he puts him by his side, and he says to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you, among you all is the one who is great. It's amazing that Jesus puts his own humility on display, and the disciples can't follow suit. Following the crucified Savior, friends, will look different than the world's understanding of greatness. If we are going to be Jesus' people, if we're going to walk in his ways, if we're going to receive his teaching, we need to understand he is the greatest, but he's showing us what greatness looks like. It looks like caring for the least of these. That's the function of the child in this passage. There are other passages where we're instructed to have faith like a child, where the child is kind of the, the example to follow. That's not the case here. The child is the one who is perhaps in this context uh, least useful. Children, we love you. I'm not saying you're not useful. I'm saying in this context that the children didn't contribute a lot to the family. I know you do all the chores, okay? I know you wash the dishes. I know you contribute, okay? But I'm just, that's what Jesus is talking about is the child that he brings along doesn't give you a lot of, of uh, uh, it doesn't give you a lot of points socially. It doesn't help you be the cool person. It doesn't help you gain power. Taking care of the child, serving the child was serving the least of these, the most insignificant. And yet Jesus says that going to those who are least significant, least able to contribute, least able to move you forward, that is the picture of greatness. How? How can that, how can that be? A couple thoughts. One is that it follows the Lord Jesus. It walks in his ways. But secondly, we might say that Jesus reorients greatness. Notice that he says, whoever, whoever receives this child in my name receives who? Jesus. And whoever receives Jesus receives the one who sent Jesus. He's saying, here's where your greatness is coming. It's going to be reoriented away from greatness in the eyes of the world and to greatness in the eyes of God. The question for us, brothers and sisters, is, is that enough? If we're going to follow in the ways of Jesus, are we, going to be, are we going to be satisfied with the Lord God looking and saying, I'm pleased in your service, and the rest of the world looking and saying, not that impressive? They needed to have their understanding of greatness redefined and reoriented, not around self, but around the Lord. And similarly, not only does he redefine greatness, he rebukes their tribalism. John, like, super misses the point. John, John answers, I don't know, John like says in response to Jesus bringing along and saying, instead of being great, you should be lowly. And John starts to say, look at those guys over there. Let's make sure we push them down. Master, we saw someone casting demons in your name, casting out demons, and we tried to stop them because he does not follow us. A concern for greatness and territorialism go hand in hand, don't they? If I'm looking for my own name to be elevated, you know the greatest threat to that is? Somebody else who's doing something cool? Somebody else who's, who's showing that they've got skills too? Quick aside, church application here. Brothers and sisters, let's just commit to be a congregation that is not interested in territorialism when it comes to gospel ministry among other churches and in this city. Let's be a people who celebrates what God is doing in other churches. 
Are we going to be thrilled if revival breaks out in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and we are not the center of it? We want to be purposeful in how we go about church and our convictions and how we think about community and gospel and mission and all those kind of things, but do not let the purposefulness of how we go about those things lead you to look down on other churches who are also trying to follow the Lord Jesus themselves. Instead, let's have generous hearts who are excited about what God is doing. One of the, you know, it, it's, it's a concern for greatness and territorialism. It's also a level of insecurity, right? Notice what these guys are actually able to do. Cast out demons. The disciples were struggling with that just like just a second ago. This is not just somebody else who's using Jesus' name and not with us. They might be doing it better. And the disciples get defensive and Jesus says, if this person isn't an enemy, he's doing it in their name, he's casting out demons in Jesus' name rather, then they're on your team and you should be excited about that. You know why? Because you are not the center of this mission. Jesus is. We are not the center of this mission. Jesus is. Our leaders are not the center of this mission. Jesus is. We don't have to get territorial because if Jesus is being exalted and our hearts are wrapped up in him, we are excited about him being exalted, even if it's at the church down the road or the ministry down the street or the other missions organization. All of this reeks of this sense of saying, I want to be great. And Jesus is saying, this is just not about you. It's actually about me, but friends, it is good news for us because it, is, it, it being about Jesus means the whole thing, your faith, your Christianity, your church life, your mission, your work, your lives, your relationships, all being about Jesus is a good news. You know why? Because he will never fail. We do not have to worry that if we go all in on Christ, he's going to fail us. That's what the transfiguration was showing us. Consider him. Not Moses, not Elijah, not anybody else, not, not any of the other leaders. Consider Jesus, build everything around it, understand success and failure in relation to him, understand greatness in relation to him, and he will not let us down. We do not have to bring into question everything when sinful people sin. Yes, it's devastating, and yes, we ought to ask ourselves, how can we be a part of fixing this and how fighting for justice and all those kind of things? You know what none of those sinful people have done? They have not rocked Jesus' throne. He is not shaken. And so, Imago Dei Church, let's just look at this text and let's just let our hearts be drawn up to consider this Christ who will never fail us, he will be always faithful. And he and he alone is the one who can fulfill and accomplish God's saving purposes for us. Praise God. Praise God that in the midst of all this strife, in the midst of all this disappointment, in the midst of all this heartache, Jesus is still on the throne. He is still faithful. And we can still trust him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your faithfulness in Christ. Thank you for your mercy and your grace to us in Christ. Thank you, Lord that in Jesus we have a Savior who will never let us down. God, we praise you for Christ. We praise you. We ask that you would just instill in our hearts a, a, a fixation with him. That all competitors would be squeezed out, that we would tremble even to mention him on the same plane with anybody else. God, and because you will never fail us in him.
We ask that you would let us use that stability as a platform and a posture to go out and live in your world, fighting for justice, fighting for mercy, making disciples, God confident in what you are doing and have done in him. And pray this in his name. Amen.